Good evening, everyone, and welcome to M Pavilion. My name is Jen Vazlinska, and I'm the associate producer of M Pavilion. Um, firstly, before we get started, there's blankets around the place, so if you'd like to take one and keep warm, please do. Um, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Boonwurrung people, the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. Tonight, I'm going to introduce you to Natalie King. Natalie King is the chief curator of Biannual Lab at City of Melbourne, and will be leading tonight's discussion on rethinking the public space. Thanks. Lewis, thanks Jennifer and Lewis. Thank you to M Pavilion for hosting us and the Biennial Lab is part of the Melbourne Festival and it's great to see some of our comrades here including Annabelle Lacroix, the program manager. Uh, we would also like to acknowledge uh, the City of Melbourne for uh, initiating the Biennial Lab, uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade for supporting Kai's visit and the copyright agency, OCAL, who also contributed to our project. Uh, I am flanked by two esteemed guests. On my right is Timothy Moore, who is part of the Sibling Collective, and he is one of the artists participating in the lab with a new commission down at Queen Victoria Market. And to my left is my comrade, Kai Horry, who is currently based in Singapore but was previously Deputy Director of Artistic Programs at the Palais de Tokyo and prior to that he was at the Singapore Art Museum leading various projects including um, the Singapore Biennial. Kai is part of our International Curatorium who is leading the Biennial Lab. So welcome to M Pavilion. Thank you. I should also let you know that behind us is a mysterious uh, repurposed box which is part of a work that you can see down at the market by a, the local collective um, Field Theory. It's called 9000 Minutes and they are broadcasting for 6.25 days, 9000 minutes live from the market. And M Pavilion has very kindly agreed to host a, um, a segment of uh, one of their boxes and live stream their um, idiosyncri idiosyncratic banter day and night. So I thought it might be helpful to start by charting you know, what is the Biennial Lab. It's a experimental and radical new initiative from the City of Melbourne. It is completely artist-centric and it um, covets the um, inner sanctum of creativity and making through a lab structure. So in June, we convened a lab for a group of artists um, on site for about 10 days. That was convened by myself, uh, Claire Doherty from Situations in the UK and Professor David Cross. And it was a very intense summit where we explored uh, various concepts, uh, materials, ideas, and artists could start to formulate uh, their temporary commissions um, for the Melbourne Festival. We had excursions, incursions, 
But importantly, every day commenced with um, someone from the market. So a lot of our discussions emanated from the market. We started with a forklift driver, um, someone who has been selling fruit and veg for three generations. So many of our discussions were um, emanating from the site. And Timothy, would you like to say yep. something about your experience of the lab? Sure. I, I think um, Natalie said before that it's a radical experiment and I have to agree with her that um, it's quite unique for the City of Melbourne to set up a lab, so a 10-day workshop, uh, towards a temporary public outcome. So when you think about public art, that it's often about permanent sculpture in the city, but to actually give over a big, large, large part of their funding to temporary art is quite a brave and risky move. And uh, this 10-day workshop was a part of this risk. And um, it was really quite an amazing experience for Sibling um, to be given the space um, and mentorship to work through ideas and concepts and to develop this uh, in contact with uh, your future audience at the same time, which is the people at the market. Mm. So Kai wasn't part of the lab but has been in constant liaison with the artists in the curatorium. You know, what, what's your imp impression of the role of a lab and how it can function within a broader program? I think, first of all, it was very brave for you to, um, or for the city to convene a Biennale based on a laboratory because, uh, you know, uh, I applaud the, the initiative because it's not falling into the trap of the typical Biennale that's bringing all the international superstars and international curator and, you know, not about big names and such things, but more about uh, pertinent local issues, you know, that everybody's talking about, but nobody's uh, really speaking, you know. So I think you gave uh, Natalie a platform for artists and the community who is there to a chance to, to speak out. And, of course, all these events would be recorded you know, and go down in history, not just uh, in terms of uh, art activities, but also history of the city uh, in itself. And I, I totally love the uh, the engagement. You know, mm. um, I think you're going to lure everyone down there tomorrow. <laughs> so we um, we have launched. Uh, we uh, the duration of the Biennial Lab is a seven day, one week cycle. Um, we very much wanted to capture the calendar of the market. The market is closed, open, day, night. Um, um, it's very volatile and voluble on some days and it's very quiet and dusty on others, such as today. So we wanted to capture that within a one-week cycle. And instead of doing a launch, uh, we decided to do more of a finale and a culmination. So on Sunday, the 23rd, you're all welcome to join us. We have a talk with Tony Birch about anti-monuments and with Timothy there will be a performance with artist Hiromi Tango and the dancer Benjamin Hancock with um, experimental percussive instruments by um, Dylan Martorell and Sophia Bruce will sing a lament and sing the Biennial Lab to a close. So Timothy, do you want to uh, tell us about your work which is called Over Obelisk um, and your work explores a um, quite small monument on the fringe of the car park uh, that is uh, dedicated to John Batman but has a very interesting disclaimer on it. Okay, so the project that Sibling undertook was called Over Obelisk which was to encase a memorial uh, with an architectural folly and I guess stepping back a bit when we applied for the uh, Biennial Lab there was an open call and um, we didn't actually have any content for this folly. We were just interested in 
this uh, useless piece of architecture and how to infuse it with meaning. And the lab gave us that kind of opportunity to think about what that content or what that meaning would be. So the work developed over time and we were interested in uh, John Batman. So John Batman, for people who don't know, is considered a founder of Melbourne. And on this monument it said that, uh, well, it says that Melbourne was unoccupied prior to 1835. So there's a public monument in Melbourne which states that Melbourne's unoccupied and of course you all know this is not true. Um, the city of Melbourne put a plaque on this monument in the 1990s to acknowledge that this monument may offend people and may also be inaccurate as well. Uh, when you walk past this monument daily, and lots of people do, they don't really notice uh, the text that the, the city of Melbourne put on it um, in the 1990s, but they do see the word unoccupied. And it's the most complained about uh, public art uh, in Melbourne, but when we say most complained about in Melbourne, it's only about two or three complaints per year. <laughs> but, but, but that's, that's mm -hmm. a lot for the collection. So we were interested in uh, this statement um, by the city of Melbourne in the 1990s, which says that this uh, monument may be inaccurate. So we thought we'd blow up this park plaque in scale, so to scale it up so more people would notice this. So we designed uh, what looks like uh, temporary construction hoarding around the monument, so it looks like it's being moved. And actually, um, the other day, one of John Batman's descendants came up to ask and asked us, I don't know what that person was doing there, by the way, maybe she <laughs> passes every day, but she, um, she, she said she was one of John Batman's descendants and thought we were going to move the monument. So the, the hoarding worked in a way that we, we wanted to show that public art is temporary. This monument is temporary. How we talk to it changes with the times as well. So if we put this uh, temporary construction hoarding or what looks like temporary construction hoarding around the monument, but there's also two follies that come out of the hoarding at, at different times of the day and night. And uh, we affectionately call these follies stairways to nowhere. So um, follies in, in architecture, in architectural language, uh, it means, uh, I guess, architecture without a sense of purpose, but it goes back further to the 18th and 19th century in landscape architecture. And just think of an ornamental building in a garden um, maybe a gothic ruin or uh, that's kind of a minute version of it um, sitting in a garden. So we're kind of interested in, I guess, this Trojan horse effect or how could, how could we kind of bring in some kind of meaning to this through some kind of cute little building or cute little project. So we've created these stairs that come out of the hoarding so you'll find lots of people sitting on it and relaxing but at the same time there's a, a deeper purpose or meaning to it as well. So we're interested in siblings' capacity to gather people and the role of over obelisk as a folly and a place of assembly because, of course, the market has large throngs of people going through it. And um, in our research, we discovered that the City Council, Melbourne City Council, was actually formed to manage Melbourne's consortium of markets. So Melbourne is essentially and historically a market city and beholden to its markets. Um, we wanted uh, a site that was laden with history but that would be sufficiently intriguing for artists. They wouldn't necessarily need to be beholden to history but be aware of it. Um, a site that would be uh, complex, uh, contested, bureaucratic as we've found over the past few months um, and a site that is uh, steeped in narrative. There are many layers of stories um, embedded in the site, uh, ghostly stories. Some of you might know that the car park is over the site of uh, one of Melbourne's first cemeteries for early settlers where approximately 9,000 bodies were interred and some still remain. So it has a... Um, a ghostly presence. It's also thought that 
two very important um, Tasmanian Aboriginal resistance fighters, Tanaminawe and Mabohina, uh, who were the first people hanged in Victoria, are buried under that site. So that's just one kind of excavated level. It's an important mercantile site, uh, a site for migrants who have come to the market and set up their stalls, and a place that is... Um, uh, resplendent with materials. There's a lot of materials there that um, we hoped would be sufficiently intriguing for artists. So, Natalie, I'm interested then, if it's, it's such a complex and contested site, how did you direct artists at the lab or how did you know when to pull back or pull, push people into different directions? Mm. I mean, the lab was a fascinating process for me. I've done convened labs for curators, but I haven't convened a lab like this for artists and for temporary interventions. So it was a new and experimental undertaking for me. And that's partly why I assembled a curatorium and some international affiliates so that there would be um, some kind of armature around the thinking. Also, I usually don't like to work on my own. I mean, working with ideas can be lonely and unknown. And my preference is to work alongside my peers. So I brought in uh, colleagues like Kai, who you know, has been working across Southeast Asia, but in one of the most experimental contemporary art spaces in Europe, Palais de Tokyo, where um, even the threshold, you often see um, quite audacious installations. Do you want to tell us about some of your programming? Um, I would touch on uh, a personal project that I have that is outside of the Palais, actually. Mm -hmm. But uh, actually, uh, there, there were two programs I've, uh, I did. Uh, one, the most recent one, uh, before I went to the Palais, I was in, in charge of uh, curatorial development at the National Heritage Board in Singapore. So what my job entails is uh, I was supposed to bring together all the curators of the museums in Singapore and then uh, conduct workshops with them. Uh, so these include uh, curators of history, anthropology, uh, and art and such. So uh, one of the trips I did, one of the forums we call it, was at the zoo. You know, so I brought all of them back to the zoo to meet a zoologist. I think that could be the next biennial lab site. <laughs> yeah, and the idea behind that is, you know, in, in history, uh, in Paris, they exhibited uh, villages, you know, like with uh, like a Japanese village as part of the World Expo, right? With actual Japanese people living, trying to live their daily lives in Paris. And then Africans and, you know, all sorts of, uh, even Southeast Asian, they, they showed that. And then in the zoo in Bronx in uh, US, they exhibited a human being in the same cage as a, as a primate. And it attracted uh, about 100,000 visitors. This was about 100 years ago, uh, still the most highly visited uh, exhibit in uh, a zoo, you know, ever, 100,000 people, I mean, at least in the, at the Bronx in New York. So I, I brought the curators to the zoo to understand or to reconsider how uh, it is as curators, how do we deal with exhibiting live things, you know, living things, like in this case, the, the zoo, you know, it, it is... A lot of zoo, uh, zoologists today also call themselves curators. They, they don't call themselves zoologists anymore. You know, and also the process of, for example, selecting and acquiring animals. Like how do you choose which animals and then why? And you know, from the scientific to, uh, to other factors such as, which is quite interesting, uh, in the Singapore Zoo, one of the uh, boxes you have to tick before you acquire an animal is whether the animal has charismatic quality. 
Okay. And then the other one is whether it's charismatic is different from iconic, whether it can be iconic. And then, for example, uh, they were explaining to me how they had their most popular uh, exhibit in the Singapore Zoo are the white tigers. So they are albino tigers, right? And then they said scientifically and in the zoological world, these tigers are unwanted. They are literally, uh, they are called freak of nature, they are albinos. But they attract attention. So they use these albino tigers to deliver the message of uh, disappearing Malayan tigers. You know, so the, the, the actual tigers they want to talk about are not there. But they are there in the text, you know, to explain how conservation work is going on and, you know, all these kind of things. So that's one of the uh, such labs I've done. So the, all curators are there and, then, you know, on the spot we discuss these issues with the zoologists amongst ourselves and uh, in relation to our profession, you know. Uh, the other one I've done is when I, when I invited young uh, uh, curators and uh, art managers from mostly from Asia and uh, uh, we had a few from Australia, we had uh, from other places as well. And this one was called How, as in uh, spelled H-A-O, uh, to uh, emulate the Chinese How as in good, you know. But also when you say it, How, it sounds like how to do, you know, how, how now, you know, right? Like what happens now with our lab. Um, and the idea was to bring them all together for three days in a camp uh, and not talk about art at all. <laughs> so uh, I had a couple of mentors who stayed in, uh, which included an urban planner and an economist. And then we invited people who are experts in CSR, experts in uh, tourism, experts in uh, anthropology and things like that, and uh, to give workshops. So the first uh, one that we did was on Sentosa Island, and we launched our program at the same time as the Singapore Biennale. So we, were, we became the anti-Biennale group. You know, so we were all on this island, not going to, to the vernissage of the... Uh, Biennale, and then uh, we're talking not about art. And we're having all these workshops at the barbecue pit, at the beach, at uh, the jungle, uh, everywhere. You know, we don't have workshops and seminars in actual seminar rooms. So we, we do workshops everywhere. We've done it a couple of times. The last one I did, uh, which I would like to point out, uh, uh, I brought these participants on a bus trip to central Singapore, right? Uh, this area uh, called Teluk Blanga and Tanjung Paga area. This is where uh, we are close to the port, you know, uh, of Singapore. So I brought them on a day trip. It started from a church. Uh, uh, it's called uh, the church is called Saint Saint Teresa's uh, Cathedral, and this church it, architecturally is a duplicate of the Sacre Coeur in Paris. It's just that it's a bit smaller. And then we had the priests. Uh, explain the history of the church, how the design came about and how the church was even set up. So it was French missionary and you know, the history of it. After this church, I brought uh, the participants on the bus still to a shrine which has links to Malay uh, mythology and, 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 and uh, uh, a lineage to, to the king of Singapore, ancient king of Singapore. So we don't know for sure whether anybody is actually buried there, but there is a myth, there's this figure who's supposedly buried there called Raden Mas, who's the son of the king who saved the king from being 
left for dead in a in a well, you know. Uh, and then one of the participants read a quatrain that she wrote about this Radin Mas, this figure. So from the shrine, we then went to Haupa Villa. We, uh, some of you might know this. It's the famous uh, tiger balm rub that you can buy at Singapore Airport. It's an ointment. They were famous for producing that ointment. But they, uh, the Haupa brothers uh, created this villa called the Haupa Villa. You go there free. Uh, I went there as a child and it's really... Uh, quite crazy. You see the ten gates of hell, like Chinese hell, you know, there, and then how you're going to be tortured if you are an adulterer, if you did this, if you did that. So parents always love bringing their kids there, you know, because it's free and then to teach the kids a lesson, if you're naughty, this is what happens to you, la la la. But it's still there and it's a site of a failed government takeover. So the Singapore government took over this uh, site and tried to turn it into a sort of a Halloween theme park, you know, Chinese style. But it failed miserably, so now it's back to have open for public free. And then uh, also amongst others, I brought them uh, for lunch at an Indian uh, cafe which is tucked away. You know, it's been there for the past 40 years. So when we eat, we spoke about the food, you know. And then I brought them to a skateboard shop, uh, actually longboard shop. So then the, 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 the skateboard shop owner explained this new uh, culture of longboarding, you know, and the suit that came with it. So everybody was like, wow, this, you know. So there's a link between, uh, also uh, to, to make uh, another one, another link was at one point we were up on the hill. Uh, this area is quite a hilly area. It's just around uh, one kilometer uh, radius, actually, the entire trip. And uh, on top of the hill, uh, you could see the port, right? And that's the, then we started talking about the economy. So this is how Singapore was built, from the port. From, it's one of the busiest ports in the world. I think if not the busiest in the world today. Uh, and of course, there was a, on the side of the hill, there's also a war museum. So we went to the war museum. So in just one kilometer uh, radius, they suddenly realized that a country like Singapore, which everybody says has no culture and no history, has so much you know, uh, history in just one kilometer square. And as curators, and the idea of this uh, how is that as curators and as uh, art programmers, you cannot forget that you are living in the real world. Art cannot just be about art. A lot of young curators, I noticed, they, they forgot that they, they live in this world among society. You know, so I think like the Melbourne uh, Lab also brings that back uh, into focus, that you know, art is not about like uh, being... Uh, shown at the places like the Palais or Pompidou or Tate, but it's really about dealing with reality, you know, where it's relevant. Yeah, I'm interested from, from both of you actually in terms of, uh, I guess, public exhibition because um, labs or the program you talk about are temporary and also public. And I found that with our siblings' work itself, when people come up to us, um, um, someone comes up to us and graffitis our work and says that Melbourne wasn't unoccupied. And when you deal with these people, you can say, well, this work's only temporary. So the temporary architecture becomes an alibi in a way where you can you have a lot more freedom in your work because of the temporary nature. So mm. I just wonder, with your programming from the commercial work that you do and also in the institutional work, do you find that um, the public nature of the lab uh, allows you to uh, find more freedoms? Well, certainly for me, um, there's the capacity to commission works that are 
that are fleeting, that are experiential, where it's about an encounter between two people and there maybe isn't much to see. So, for example, the collaborative duo that are part of A Centre for Everything, Gabrielle de Vietri and Will Foster, have undertaken over the past three months um, elaborate and embedded research into the site and they have explored the hand gestures that you find in the market. So the market is very audible and there's a lot of spruiking, but there's a lot of gesticulating. So they have developed a um, hands-on self-guided tour that is only one-on-one. So it's a very intimate uh, experience and you navigate through the market in a very different itinerary that you would normally be used to. So I guess that's an example of a work that is um, more fleeting and provisional. And that's, for a curator, that's really liberating. Yeah, yeah. yeah for me, temporary, te- uh, the temporary and the permanent is starting to lose meaning fast, you know, because I come from a place where everything gets destroyed. And then recently I was telling uh, friends, even friends from the arts ministry, that, you know, it's as if it's in, in Singapore, we destroy things to be nostalgic. We want the nostalgia, so we de- de- let's destroy it so that we can be nostalgic about it, you know, like deliberately. And in terms of art, um, I don't think, for me, I don't think it makes a difference. What I'm interested in is really the relationship between myself as the curator and uh, the commissioner or the powers that are up there, you know, the government, and uh, how much I can how much power I can transfer or, or borrow from them to myself and then lend it to the artist <laughs> for that moment. Like, I love that relationship, you know, like to gain the trust of, uh, you know, the state, uh, you know, give, give me the trust and then I pass that trust on to the artist and do whatever uh, they would like to. Mm. Um, I mean, that's often the role of the curator is arbitrator, conduit, mm. um, agitating but also being compliant it's a very delicate dance but the word curator the etymology of the word comes from the verb curare which means to take care and i think that's, i would say that as one of my roles is to take care of artists and their ideas that is one uh, version and then the other mm-hmm. the french version is commissaire yes. which is you commission, commission, commission you know and then it takes on a totally different uh, meaning you know uh, so there's, you need to have a lot of trust to commission somebody to, to do something. So, which was how we work in the Palais. Uh, I was, I learned a lot, of course, you know, when I went there at that very high level of work. One thing I loved about it was that the moment we invite an artist uh, verbally, and then some, if a curator from the Palais or the direct, the president of the Palais comes to you and say. Uh, we would like you to do a show, you know, to do something at the Palais. That invitation is open until your show happens. There's no actual deadline. You know, so some artists, we've been talking for the past five years and we still don't have a show, you know, because the artist is either not ready or, you know, keep changing uh, their minds. The only time when we uh, we kind of uh, stop the show from happening is when we get artists who... At you know, at a point becomes really, really rude or really, <laughs> you know, yeah, just too much to bear, and then we like we just slowly forget, you know, this person <laughs> we ever invited. See how they do their programming <laughs> at the Palais de Tokyo. Yeah, but otherwise it's quite open and yeah, free. Mm. 
Timothy, I wonder if you could talk about your role. Um, with You've got a background in architecture and yet you're part of the Biennial Lab. Um, you know, architecture is kind of sturdy and functional and yet you were required to envisage a work yeah, so that is temporary in the same way that M Pavilion is temporary and, and is has a whole set of new conditions. Yeah, I, I, with the risk of conflating architects versus arch artists here, um, I guess there's a different discipline and training. So it was really fascinating as Sibling came into a workshop with nine other artist groups. Um, one, uh, there's different things being asked. So um, often on projects for Sibling, we ask what is the problem and how can we solve it? And artists don't ask this at all. Uh, it's not very <laughs> pragmatic. So it was, it was a bit of a shock for me to get there and go, oh, how can we solve something when there's actually nothing to solve there in the first place? And it's more about reframing what is the question, what is urgent there to be discussed. So mm -hmm. for me, that was a, a learning experience to change, I guess, my disciplinary background and learn how to listen, um, be much slower. So architects, when we're thrown in to a workshop, um, we work very quickly um, in terms of understanding the urban context, um, doing research, visualising our work, and I had to get used to a slowness as well. Um, and there's a reason for this slowness to allow for new ideas to evolve as well. So on, even from a process level, it's very different for me, a very different background and a, a fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. And then I guess from, yeah, from an architectural and functional background, it was great not to have to solve a problem and probably create more of our own problems in the end mm -hmm. and um, just ask questions and put it out there in the end. So that was kind of liberating for us where we, we don't really have a client, um, a large budget. Um, we could really throw around ideas and explore questions that we think about in our office about the city, um, but put it out there in a different way as well. And I think, yeah, also um, without talking too much about urban renewal at the Victoria market, it's also a really uh, fascinating moment um, in the history of the market. So we can throw out a few questions about um, what happens next, as, as the title of the biennial is. And for sibling, we're interested in what does happen to the John Batman monument as the market redevelops because the car park will change its function to a public park. So we're interested in not making claims on that site, but just provoking, saying, don't forget about this. That whole idea of an open-ended question or a proposition um, links us back to the title of the Biennial Lab, which is What Happens Now? Question mark. And um, I was under a lot of pressure in January um, in New York. I was getting copious amounts of emails from the team who were in the back row asking me to settle on a title. And I went along with my family to the Brooklyn Museum and I saw Jenny Holtz's uh, inflammatory essays from 1979. And this was a anonymous paste-up program throughout New York City and it's full of scorn and it's um, kind of rueful and agitated and there I saw the phrase, what happens now? And I immediately thought this... Um, phrase is sufficiently open-ended and I guess capacious for artists and also it's a question and it helps us ponder uh, where we are at this moment in time and are we at crossroads in our city in a market that's going through um, immense flux and transition. And especially the space around the site as well. If you think of North Melbourne, you have about 6,000 people that have arrived there in the last five years. Uh, there's structural plans for the just north of there as well. So there's a, a huge pressure on public space in Melbourne and in particular in North Melbourne, West Melbourne and the North End. So th this project is also addressing that need and that desire as well, which is important. Mm. 
Kai, I might be putting you on the spot here, but would you like to reflect on some of the works that you've seen in the Biennial Lab and share some observations? I think the first work, of course, that uh, if you are coming into the car park that you see, and the first work that I saw was the work by Sibling. And I thought that was really, really striking, partly also because I'm curating a public art uh, exhibition in January in Singapore. So it gave me really uh, some inspiration. You know, the ideas of uh, not just as uh, a work that confronts the monument, but also as a sculpture that moves, you know, and, and you know, using this idea of the folly, which is quite an old concept in... in uh, extension of egos of uh, some people in some parts of the world, you know, like building a thing that has no purpose whatsoever just because they can, you know. Um, so, yeah, siblings work, def definitely, you know, uh, I think it's really, really relevant also uh, from where I come from because uh, ideas of the colony is also being contested, you know, like who... Uh, originally uh, was there first, who did what, and you know, it's more and more be, uh, being contested. And and for us in Singapore, uh, especially as uh, with the passing of our first Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew, these questions are now emerging, you know, and being uh, thrown to the younger ministers who are there at the moment. Um, then the other work, of course, is the radio station by... by uh, Field theory. theory, yeah, mm. uh, because I started off my own practice as an artist, you know, and uh, a lot of my work is in uh, or was in performance art and theatre, and I feel that uh, the radio is a passive aggressive act of performance. It's like you know, it's almost like theatre of cruelty. What they're doing to themselves <laughs> is crazy, you know, like four hours of rest, you know, uh, or, or shifts in four hours. It's just really reminded me, I told Natalie, of uh, my life in the military, you know, when you are on duty, like, you get six hours rest and just, uh, you know, as you are going to go to sleep and then you have to wake up again and then go on duty again and four hours is just madness. But uh, I've been, being, having been part of the performance art scene in Southeast Asia, at least, you know, and seeing all the uh, really upfront, in-your-face kind of confrontation, all the blood, all the nudity, all the you know, knives cutting bodies and all these things, uh, which I've done myself too. I mean, <laughs> this is something else, right? It's radio. It's providing a service, but it's torturing as well. You know, like talking non-stop for six and six days and 25, what? 6.25 six, six <laughs> yeah, days. 6.25 days. Mm, Nine yeah, so minutes. I love that, that, that as an idea of a performance, you know, as a durational performance. Um, and then the other piece... Wait, let me, there's one more. Uh, uh, I haven't seen all of them in action yet. I haven't been part of uh, uh, Invisible... Um, Invisible Hands. Invisible Hands as work. But you did a workshop. Yeah, yeah I did a workshop with the Mechanics uh, Institute. Which Institute. is Sana and Jamie. Who, it's called Trade School, and they're looking at the idea of value and trade for artists and what actually can be bartered. Yeah, so the first session I, I was a part of was by Anastasia Close. Anastasia Close, yeah, the, the artist, you know. And uh, so everyone at the table apparently was an artist except me. And then Anastasia opened with this... Uh, uh, spiel about how she hated curators and people in power in the art world and not knowing that I'm that guy, you know, like, 
so I just listened and as the, they went around the table but I I I love that at the end of that discussion what I realized is that the dilemma of artists is really universal you know like whether you're in Asia here uh, in Europe it's really a lot of artists face the same thing uh, and ask the same questions and then they get disappointed also by the same thing you know and they look at uh, same institutions as points of power which is really uh, sometimes I find quite ironic like I did a residency in Cannes where you know life is really slow and nothing much happens <laughs> and then the artists there were all like yeah Kai what can we do you know we're in Cannes nobody cares you know where we are like nobody comes here and say, but precisely that's the point because if you make the mistake nobody cares if you make a success, then everybody looks at you and want to look for you, you know. And uh, you are that place where everybody who is on the way to the to the uh, the barrier reef, like, passes by. So if you have something really exciting, people will come to you, you know. Like, I think art has uh, made, uh, uh, as an example by Recruit, uh, for example, Recruit Tiravanitja's practice, like uh, one of the projects he did was the Land Foundation. I don't know how many of you have been to the land in Thailand, in Chiang Mai, where Recruit did his project. It's really far away. It's, and when you get there to do your one-year residency, it's really a piece of land with nothing else. <laughs> and then your job is to build your own house, to find your own electricity, you know, somehow get it going. So to learn how to live again. And that project became like really an important project for not just Recruit, but... I think it was discussed a lot in the art world. It's you know, a place that most people who discuss it have never even been to. You know, not just the land, but even Thailand. Not, not many people who discuss these things have been to Thailand. So I think distance and hopes and aspirations and disappointments, uh, that was and, really and cool. And habitation is important. Yeah, so mm. I'm going to give a workshop myself at the... Uh, don't bully me, please, when you come on Sunday. <laughs> I don't. I, I haven't uh, gotten, you know, like a solid idea of what I'm. I'm reacting to everything that I'm that I'm taking in right now at the market and with all the events. So uh, yeah, at least these three that I've experienced like firsthand, and uh, and there's one fleeting work that today I got a really really good chance of talking to the artist. It's uh, uh, Kenny. So uh, Kenny Pitchock, he's not in the Biennial. I think he's here tonight, but he's yeah. our sort of interloper <laughs> illustrator. So he came along to the lab and um, did some hilarious drawings and he's been participating. Yeah, that's a really... I mean, I thought that was a really good idea, documenting the whole Biennial by drawings, you know, and of course with his unique sense of humour, you know, added to the drawings. And I, I love that as a work as like you don't actually realize it's happening you don't really interact with the work but it is there's a work happening somewhere in the market you know and today i had a chance to speak more with uh, Kinney and i love it i love uh, this that that the existence of that work mm. and we wanted to um, include an element of humor in the project as well because it's such a serious site maybe we should open up the floor to questions Does anyone have any questions? This is your chance. Kai's only here for a couple more days. 
Uh, Timothy, I've did you have any comments? I've always got questions. Uh. <laughs> I, I, I'm interested in the site itself, and maybe you could talk about why this site? Um, I know that the Biennial Lab will happen three times, or City of mm. Melbourne is guaranteed that the yeah. project will happen three times. So I was interested in what other sites you were mm. talking to, mm -hmm. and also why is this site important for you, and what did you see in its potential as mm. well? So I was offered an array of sites and the um, market was the only site that I wanted to work with. I would not have proceeded if I didn't access that site and it's probably been the most complex site to have secured. I mean, Melbourne is a densely labyrinthine and creative city and I wanted a site that had historical resonance that would be sufficiently intriguing for artists that already had communities um, embedded in it and traversing it. Um, I wanted a site that um, has been there for a long time, a site that was accessible. You know, I was offered sites along the Mar Maribyrnong River, under underpasses, I was offered civic squares, but none of them seemed to have um, the potential, I thought, for artists. I wanted a site that would be, um, you know, intriguing for artists and Hopefully that's what's happened. And I'm interested because often governments use artists as kind of place-making embellishments where they're sending artists to ameliorate the neighbourhood. So I was wondering whether with this project, and I don't know the answer to this, but I'm just interested with this project whether um, you were kind of pushed towards different sites because what was happening there in terms of redevelopment, urban redevelopment? I mean, the terminology that the City of Melbourne used um, and the Public Art Melbourne um, unit is led by Linda Roberts, is that she wanted to offer me sites that were porous, where artists could embed, excavate um, and explore ideas, and they were the kinds of sites um, that were open to me. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And I also had a um, very talented researcher, Anita, who's here tonight, and she excavated a lot of material about Queen Victoria Market. She went to the State Library, the National Film and Sound Archive. She found um, very rare moving image footage from the 1950s of people at the market. So we had we set up a lab laboratory um, during our workshops for the artists who wanted to use a more research-driven methodology. They could access uh, letters, documents, plans, um, plans from um, the grave sites, so we know the kinds of communities that were buried there, the communities that were buried on the fringes of um, the cemetery, they were the Jewish community and the Aboriginal community. So um, there was a lot of research that we undertook um, on this site that I thought would be you know, sufficiently intriguing for artists. Okay. Can, I, can I add something about the, this? I've been uh, telling some of uh, my colleagues here, like uh, you know, this this whole relationship of the market and uh, as uh, and an and an old uh, burial site. Right? It was a, it's an old burial site. So when the first day I came, it was on on Monday. The market was closed, and of course no one was there. Right. So you know, I have this information at hand, and I look. Okay, you know, fine. And on Tuesday, when people started coming. And then to see these people walking on the tarmac, and then in my mind I know that down there there's people buried, and it then it became real, you know. That how could this be even you know in my mind, like how could they have built the market in the first place, you know, like like I don't know what a hundred years ago, eighteen seventy eight is when so the market 
yeah, more than a hundred years. Yeah, so it's it's such an impossible concept, you know, to build over. They would have known then that it was a burial site. Uh, having said that, uh, in Singapore, you can only now get buried for fifteen years, right? After that, they dig you up and they put you somewhere else, and then somebody else gets buried in your exact same spot. So that's the rule now. So I know that when I die, in if I die in Singapore, you know, I'll be buried for 15 years and then they'll dig me up and somebody else will, you know, uh, take my place. So, you know, it's crazy what we're going through, you know, like I don't know what else happens in other parts of the world, right? Uh, ideas of or, or uh, uh, the protocol to burials and burial sites. Uh, how do you deal with them? Yeah. Well, well, there is a protocol with our artwork where it wasn't allowed to move on to the cemetery itself. And you know, that came from another artist as well who had a problem walking over the bodies. Yeah, yeah we found that um, some Indigenous elders who we invited into the lab wouldn't walk onto the market site, so we, um, we assembled on the perimeter, mainly in Flagstaff Gardens, uh, to conduct some of our research, in particular with Uncle Lenny. But another aspect of the site that... Um, I was very interested in is the capacity for programming at night because many institutions have very fixed rigid systems bureaucratic hours you know we all know what museum hours are like and I think there's a whole set of possibilities that um, unfold when you can program at night and in fact I did some of the programming here um, in the second cycle um, called and I did a series of um, projects called One Night Stand because I thought how interesting to program in a park under the cover of darkness at night with no rules. I mean, imagine the kinds of daring things that can happen. Mm. So the whole program, whole prospect of programming outside of the rigid um, parameters of bureaucratic hours is always of great interest to me and something that I'm exploring um, as curator of Tracy Moffat at the Venice Biennale, um, you know, what are the capacities for working on the threshold of um, the pavilion, what can be on the exterior of the pavilion, what, what will be visible at night um, across the canal, so especially because Tracy works in moving image, I think there's enormous potential there but I can't disclose any more. <laughs> I can see a colleague from the Australia Council <laughs> looking at me intently. <laughs> Well, you know, I hope then the programming of, of the lab at the market also inspires people to use the market in different ways. It is um, a large public space, about seven rugby fields, mm. and it's underutilised about three or four days of the week and at night time, so mm. hopefully it does trigger more people to use it as a public mm. space. Yeah, I mean, it's the largest open-air market in the southern hemisphere, so it, it, its scale is really vast, but it also has an incredible intimate quality. We have a question. Perhaps we should hand out a microphone. I didn't know about the cemetery there, mm. and um, it occurs to me, like, do we have, do you have a, like a list, or is there a list of who's buried, where, their name, and where? There isn't a list of names, but there, I there are maps which mm. designate the different communities and where they're buried. The, the mm. documents were burnt in a fire, mm. um, okay. so they've lost records of who was buried where. They did exhume about 900 bodies in the 1920s, so we know who these people were, but they were important founders of Melbourne per se, so we don't, we don't really know the other 9,000 bodies, who, who is where. Mm. It occurs to me that that's a possible thing to look at is um, 
painting um, on the actual car park, mm. nominated areas so that people would become more aware of that. I think that's an interesting point in terms of the surface because if you dig uh, uh, 30 centimetres below the ground, you, uh, you will dig up bodies. Um, and it has been done when they're doing reconstruction on the site. So the, the surface and is, is one, one thing that you could look at. Um, the City of Melbourne has proposed at the moment a public park on the site itself. Um, so not to build on it, but to leave it as a public park and remove the car park. Uh, hi. I'll come to a question, but <laughs> the first thing I want to say is congratulations. I, I was there on Tuesday and I really enjoyed experiencing some of those. I was there probably when the market was closed already, and I really enjoyed experiencing some of the, some of the events, and I thought it was very layered, and I thought there's room to do this again and have many more stories. There's so many layers in the history of the market, in the sociology of the market, the anthropology of the market. So I'm just curious where you intend what you're thinking about for the next uh, lab. Is it feasible to think about doing so the market again? So the City again? of Melbourne have committed to three biennial labs, so there'll be one every two years, with a different curator and a different site okay. and a different vision. Okay. okay. So I hand over to someone else, which I think is completely apt. Okay. Good, thank you. Hi, Natalie. Um, I was wondering if you could just have a little bit of a, a discussion about uh, the selection of artists, uh, because a lot of groups were chosen, and I think that's mm -hmm. a really interesting idea because it's a social project in many ways. And I think that's um, kind of... You, have you chosen these artists mm. specifically because they are in groups, or was that part of the strategy? No, not necessarily. The artists were chosen um, because of their concept, and I chose them with a curatorium that included uh, people from um, diverse backgrounds. So Gifa Greenaway is on that curatorium. He's the only registered um, Aboriginal architect in Victoria. There are only seven in all of Australia. It's incredible. Uh, John Mundine, the activist curator from Sydney. Uh, Veronica Kent, the artist from the telepathy group. Uh, a colleague from Queen Victoria Market, because of course, um, you need um, ownership and buy-in from um, the site. Uh, that was Fiona Whitworth. We had uh, Linda Roberts from the City of Melbourne. So uh, we, and David Cross, who also um, co-convened the lab. It was, the artists were selected after an open call and I have never worked with that system. I normally choose the artists and I know the artists that I have a history with and I'm not used to working in um, kind of that very much larger, more expansive modality. I, I found it challenging. So there was an open call. Uh, we received over 150 applications, which really um, suggests how artists are so eager to work in this particular more experimental mode. And for budgetary reasons, we were only able to select a certain amount. Um, we wanted projects that were... Um, that were audacious, that were realisable, that maybe would take some risks, uh, that would understand site and history but not necessarily be beholden to it. Uh, uh, 
projects that we could disperse across the site. Uh, some w projects are, are very visual, whereas others are more experiential. And it was a, a process of, um, you know, e exploring each of those submissions. And it was, it was a very arduous process. But one of the parameters uh, that I did set was, and, and this is um, all due respect to emerging artists, is that I didn't, I didn't want to work with emerging artists because I thought uh, to understand a site of this complexity and with so many layered narratives, you need a certain level of capacity and maturity and experience. And that's why um, we were keen to seek proposals from artists who are at that pivotal stage and approaching mid-career. And I thought that was a, um, a group of artists who sometimes are overlooked, um, who have already been on the circuit through um, the contemporary art spaces, but then are looking for something, um, um, something more tangible to work on. So I hope that explains your question. Hello. Um, in terms of rethinking public space, I was wondering if uh, throughout the workshop, if um, you thought about a more than human public? Can you explain what you mean by more than hum superhuman, post-human? Well, not non-human kinds, plants, animals. Hmm. I mean, the, the, during the workshops, different, uh, I guess, mentors were brought into the workshop, so mm -hmm. there was... Uh, where, chef, where chef came in. So, so food was one thing that was worked mm. through and also I guess sound was another thing. So un unnatural sounds as well. So uh, they were kind of put to us but not always picked up upon. So I think there was a hope from the curatorium that people would be interested in uh, non-humans like food uh, but mm. or plant life but nothing came to the fore at all. Mm. So we had it for the workshop lab we had um, sort of guest provocateurs came in and led sessions. We had a Robin Anir, who's a psychogeographer. We had Gideon Obazanek, who um, started Chunky Move. And he gave a workshop on the idea of flocking and how actually birds flock and therefore humans form these patterns of assembly. Uh, Veronica Kent and Patrick Pound got everyone to... Um, sleep with an archival image from the market under their pillow and to try and induce a dream. So we had all these different methods to try and, you know, elicit creative thinking. There, there was an idea also in early in the day, I don't know whether you, rem re you remember this, Natalie, like I was supposed to come and cook a curry and, <laughs> and, and give a workshop at the same time. So like uh, to bond through cooking and something possibly foreign, you know, because the curry recipe would be my own, you know, mm. like from the family and things like that, mm. but uh, not yet happening. Well, Still there, was, there was a, hosp a um, hospitality and conviviality element that was steeped in the project. So we had a, um, a friend who came in and cooked meals, lunches and dinners with produce from the market. So there was you know, round table discussions around food and, and sharing a meal and hospitality. 
There was one object that became quite um, of interest for the artists, which were the metal boxes that you probably see shunting around the market at night times. So a lot of artists became interested in the history of these boxes and it became very clear very quickly that it's quite illogical why they're used and how they're moved. And it did get picked up by a few artists in the outcome of their work as well. Thank you for your um, your talks and your questions. Um, I wanted to ask you also about uh, maybe some of the challenges that you had during during. We'd the be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> Considering that, um, of course, the, the success of the panel really comes out in in the complexity and in the works and fails, but also thinking about um, the fact that it, this is the first public art panel for for Melbourne. Um, I'm sure these things that um, will be really interesting to reflect on as well? Mm. You know, that's a really epic question because there are, you know, enormous challenges uh, with the site, uh, the various stakeholders. Um, we're in an election phase, so there was a lot of um, checking and layers of, like, every tweet has to be checked at the moment through the City of Melbourne. It, it's really unbelievable. So. We've had to be um, nimble and agile, but also compliant, um, which I find hard, but you know, that's my job, is to you know, navigate a lot of these um, regulations. Like for example, um, it's been raining very heavily on field theory's exposed box. You can't put a tarpaulin up in the market. Um, I don't know why not, but we, you know, we need to find you know, practical solutions, but also navigate um, the complexities of, you know, bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Can I, yeah, yeah. A, a challenge for, for me, and uh, I find this always challenging even with other pro projects, it's when you are working from distance, like we're kind of like I'm one of the uh, uh, affiliates, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, I often feel guilty because like I feel like I'm not contributing enough and I'm not engaging enough with the artists and I can't do that really you know because it's physically uh, impossible you know to to be here to be close to the artist or to bring the artist to where I was and I think this is one of those things that people often don't talk about the um, uh, psychological struggle of the curator outside of dealing with bureaucracies and artists themselves, like their personal struggle. Like uh, Natalie says, it's very lonely when you when you think alone and you deal with things alone. And then, who can you tell? You know, like uh, I mean, I could tell her; she could tell me. But still, that the the distance thing, and uh, I don't know. Maybe it kind of is part of uh, a challenge. I think you know part of the project. It might have been different if I were here, let's say, three months uh, to spend time with the artists, even at the lab, you know, right? But I think also, I mean, you're bringing another perspective and another conversation mm. that we can extend here this evening, which is um, you know, really important. But that whole idea of lonely and exceptional ideas and, you know, a, a laboratory is, a, is an experiment of unknown ideas. Mm -hmm. I think that might draw tonight to a close. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, there's one question. This will be our last question. 
I would like to ask for siblings, what is the, the thought about of the changes that the installations brought to the use of the public space in the market? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's it's temporary at the moment, so we can't really say what's, what's going to happen there. Um, for us, we're just hoping for a conversation around, uh, I guess, colonization at this site and also, I guess, the history of this site, which is not always remembered. Um, it's interesting to stand there and talk to people. So, you know, John Batman's descendant or the 60-year-old the man who graffitied no on it because he didn't agree with it. So it's, uh, I think it's those one-on-one -on -one changes when you talk to these people and try and understand their perspective. I think that's the most important thing than the physical, what will happen to this site. We, we're not in control of that, but yeah, these one-on-one -on -one interactions is probably the most important thing for us, the human side. And, and on Sunday, Tony Birch, the you know, esteemed um, Aboriginal writer who has written extensively about anti-monuments and the unmonumental will be speaking um, about siblings' work at the market, so please join us. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for coming.